We're going to kick off episode 586 with the song Just Another Surf Song. It's from the band The Dwellers. It's their new single. You can check them out over on Spotify, courtesy of Spaghetti Records. Thank you for letting us play their music here on the show. Of course, you'll hear this song in its entirety at the end of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It's Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook, your writer, host, and producer. And this week on the show, slight change of plans. We originally were going to talk about the movie Creature from the Haunted Sea with Tom Greganis. Well, then we lost somebody. Um, Chris Yeworth is a stalwart of Monster Bash. He would be at every Monster Bash I ever went to. He was there, wanting to talk about the blob, dinosaurs, working with his dad, his faith, the blob, 4D man, Dinosaurus, just, you know, he's a good dude. He just passed, and I wanted to pay a little bit of a tribute to him, and it just so happens that Mike R. recorded his Q&A at Monster Bash, so his last Monster Bash Q&A you're going to hear this week on the show. Now, during the Q&A, he does reference some things that he's holding up, some artwork, that sort of thing, so please just kind of go through that and just imagine he's holding up some amazing artwork when you hear him talk about that and please keep in mind that he has been dealing with cancer and his voice isn't nearly as strong as it once was his message is just as strong and loud and clear it's just his voice isn't the best and and i think he knew that and he tried the best he could i did some fiddling on my side too as well to make it sound as good as possible i hope you enjoy what you're going to hear also Famous Monsters of Filmland. Kenny's got a look at it, so we've got that coming up. And Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review. We're going to get into everything here. Um, but first, I wanted to play another song. I wanted to pay further tribute to Chris and everything that he meant to the Monster Key community by playing some music from an album he put out called One Night in 57. This is the title track from One Night in 57 by Chris Yeworth and the Molten McQueen's we're going to play that now. Rest in peace, Mr. Yeaworth, and thank you. Steven, neither Gene, Ralph, and Burke, but Bill, Vincent, Tom, but only 
gentlemen, here is an important message from Jack H. Harris, producer of 4D Man. Imagine a check for one million dollars being made out to you. In my new film, you will see 4D Man perform feats never seen on the screen before. And if you, any one of you listening to me, can actually perform in real life the feats ascribed to 4D Man, one million dollars in cash will be yours. Your admission ticket to see 4D Man in widescreen and color may be worth $1 million. 4D Man is the most amazing motion picture ever made. The story of one man who solved the mystery of the fourth dimension. Even in this century of wonders, when science holds nothing to be impossible, you'll gasp in awe at the feats of the 4D Man. In color to thrill you as never before, 4D Man. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. 
coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at HeySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. A young woman named Kaori, spending time outdoors with her friends, collapses after inhaling the aroma of a translucent plant in the 21st episode of Ultra 7, The Flower Where the Devil Dwells. Kaori is taken to the medical center at TDF headquarters for treatment, where she promptly receives a transfusion of Amagi's blood. A nurse doing nighttime rounds is shocked to find Kaori's bed empty. She tracks the patient to the basement, but Kaori chokes her and proceeds to knock out Amagi, who was drawn by the nurse's cry. During his recovery, Dan notices an unusual puncture wound near Amagi's jugular vein suggesting that the woman under their care has become a vampire. Their suspicion is confirmed by a TDF doctor who asserts that a parasitic creature has taken up residence in her lungs and is causing her thirst for blood. Amagi pleads with the doctors to do something, but the prognosis is not good, leading Dan to attempt a risky procedure of his own in the form of a microscopic Ultra 7 to save Kaori from an internal invasion. The Flower Where the Devil Dwells is a colorful example of the series' ability to play with genre expectations within a single episode. It sets up as a horror story, drawing on various elements of vampire lore and cinematic imagery such as dripping blood and nightgown-clad women wandering in dark places before turning in the direction of straight-ahead science fiction. The main action sequence seems a deliberate homage to Richard Fleischer's Academy Award-winning Fantastic Voyage, which had been released in August of 1966 and had itself been influenced by ideas from Osamu Tezuka's Astro Boy, a case of creative inspiration coming full circle. While the creature Ultra 7 faces is quite modest by series standards, it fits the context well, never threatening to upstage the eye-popping set design while posing a serious threat to Seven. The final scenes of Flower Where the Devil Dwells are particularly memorable, as Amagi and Dan reunite with Kaori amidst a sea of vibrant blooms. Because she was in a trance, she barely recalls the two men who saved her life. But for the noble Ultra Guardsman, her safety is its own reward. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, This is Mark Matsky reporting. Years. I'm a 
walking, destroying Dinosaurus. The most amazing adventure since the beginning of time. Dinosaurus. For these people, there could only be shock and dismay. For who among them could believe that out of the primordial slime had come these creatures? The huge Brontosaurus, the ferocious Tyrannosaurus, even a primitive caveman. Panic-stricken, horrified, did they have the courage, the ingenuity to survive? How do we get word out, hacker? Mailboat will be in tomorrow morning. By tomorrow, we could all be dead. We are going to be friends, you and me. Sights never before seen on the screen. A 60-ton dinosaur tamed by a small boy and a caveman. A caveman loose in a modern home. The death duel of the dinosaurs. A girl caught by the dread Tyrannosaurus. The battle between giant monster and monster machine. The moat of fire. Yeah, but for how long? Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today, we are remembering frequent Monster Bash guest, Chris Yeworth, who passed away this month. You will be hearing his last Monster Bash panel recording from June. Let's look at how FM covered his father Irving Yeworth's three Monster Kid-worthy films and the passing of one of his celebrity friends. The first film featured was 1960's 4D Man. A two-page preview can be seen in issue three from April of 1959. It had several photos of Robert Lansing in old age makeup with this caption. 100th birthday, here I come, cries this once young man who is suffering from 4D-itis in a new pick who discovers the secret of the fourth dimension at the cost of zeroing away his life and others. Robert Lansing's young and handsome face has begun to disintegrate due to his trips through the fourth dimension, which is the reason he is going all to pieces in these picks. There was also this brief write-up. Life Thief, the Mark of Zero. One for the money, two for the show. Three to make ready, and four to grow old. This show is about a deadly four-dimensional man. In addition to the usual measurement of width, breadth, and height, he has death. Kiss him and see the other world. Tony Harris, age 13, is credited with helping his pop, Jack Harris, dream up this kiss of death man, who can walk through walls but, vampire-like, needs the life force of others to keep himself from becoming a modern mummy. This hair razor is by the producers of The Blob, who let Famous Monsters local reporter behind the scenes at their Pennsylvania picture-making studio to bring you the advanced photos of the Zero Man whose transmatter touch means instant aging to friend and foe alike. Watch for this corpse maker, but don't get too close if you value your life. In issue 6 from February 1960, this promotion for the film was announced. One million dollars will be given away by Jack H. Harris, the producer of The Blob. And that's a blob of loot, all root, to the first person who can duplicate in real life the real life feat of the star of his latest horror feature. All you have to do to claim your million clams, what a clam bake, is to see the movie The 4D Man and do as he does. 
Surely some clever reader of famous monsters is capable of winning this prize. Dr. Acula tried. They locked him in a room and he broke out with chicken pox. But they disqualified him for turning chicken. Then Igor, the original Igor Beaver, tried it just the opposite way. He ran around the house till he was all in, but didn't win because he broke his neck doing it. Anyway, we wish you luck in winning the million dollars by being the first person to figure out how to walk through a wall. Just don't get wall-eyed trying. That is the last we hear of this offer, so I don't think anybody won the million dollars. In issue 40 from August of 1966, there was a seven-page, eight-photo article on Dinosaurus. It was mainly a synopsis of the film, but ended with these facts and opinions. This Jack H. Harris production starred Ward Ramsey, Christina Hansen, and Paul Lukather, with special effects by Wah Chang and Gene Warren, and was made in 1960 in color by Fairview Productions and released through Universal Pictures. The animated monsters themselves were built by the master hand of Marcel Delgado, creator of King Kong and the Lost World models. One interesting scene was that of the Trianosaurus wrecking an island bus. This stop-motion sequence was good to create a terrible feeling toward the monster. Other scenes of relative worth were the Battle of the Brontosaurus and Trianosaurus, and the Trianosaurus and the Crane. A similar scene, although much more effective, smooth, and realistic, could be found in The Animal World. Dinosaurus is nevertheless worth seeing. The Yeworth's most famous film, 1958's The Blob, was not featured in a big way in FM, but I found this short blurb in issue 99 from July of 1973 in an article about Blob and Brain movies. The Blob, Paramount 1958, was made in unliving color. It too shuttled to Earth inside a meteorite, and soon afterward the gelatinous substance was discovered by a nosy farmer. After absorbing the man, it moved on to bigger and better things, all the while increasing in size. There was no escaping the thing as it slithered under doors and through window gratings. Steve McQueen and his teenage friends found out about the creature's unwholesome appetite and followed it to a local supermarket. After acid bullets and electricity proved ineffective against the giant red terror, the hero rationalized that cold, not the germ, the temperature, would immobilize it. The poor thing now lies in a frozen state in the Antarctic. One of the most interesting memories the late Chris Yeaworth shared with the fans was his relationship with the Blob star, super celebrity Steve McQueen. Here's what Forey had to say about the famous actor when he passed away in 1980, from issue 172, April of 1981. Steve McQueen is dead. We all know that. The sad news of his demise broke last November when your editor was traveling in Europe and followed me from Switzerland through Germany, Luxembourg, and on to Paris. Born in 1930, died 1980, claimed by cancer, lived only 50 years. With advances in medicine, surgery, diagnostics, etc., most of you readers of FM should be able to look forward to celebrating your 100th birthday, barring accidents such as meeting up with Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, or the blob. Steve had been in a couple of pictures in 1956, Somebody Up There Likes Me, and Beyond a Doubt. But beyond a doubt, he was born the same year as FM, 1958, when he really came to everyone's attention with his role in The Blob. He always did a good job in The Magnificent Seven, Hell is for Heroes, The Great Escape, The Sand Pebbles, Bullet, many others, and his final film, The Hunter. 
just a pity he couldn't have lived another 50 years and have acted at least another half of them. Rest in peace, Mr. Gayworth, and thank you for sharing so much with us Monster Kids. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Nothing can stop it. The Blob. Starring Steve McQueen. It creeps. It crawls. It's slithery. It's slimy. The Blob. Plus Dinosaurus, both in shrieking color. Chris is a veteran of the Monster Bash. He's been with us for a few years now. He's always great. He's got some great stories. I'm sure he's going to share with us. Uh, I see that, you know, he brought, you know, some visuals with him. I'm going to let him explain the visuals that you brought along. This, these are from uh, Dinosaurus. Well, yes, I have one also from uh, the Blob, the graphic novel, which will never be published. <laughs> but uh, first I want to say, I didn't know if I was going to make it here. I have stage four pancreatic cancer and have had it since uh, they finally diagnosed it correctly in January. Um, and so I'm just delighted that I'm able to be here. Uh, and I know it's a, it's a medical miracle they gave me six weeks back in February. Wow. So um, it's the prayers and support from people. And obviously, when I got out, after my first four cycles, I had a, a side effect. I spent a week in the hospital, got it corrected, got out of my car, cut my cane on my welcome home mat, and fell and broke vertebrae T5 through T8. So I am wearing a brace underneath all of this. And we'll have to for the next, they say, six weeks at least, because chemotherapy works on your your bones. And, and anyhow, I am so grateful to be here because it's the prayers, and, and, and obviously there's something left I have to do, even if it's just to be here today. There's no earthly reason in the world I should still be alive. And we're glad you're here. I'm not looking for sympathy, I'm just telling you that this place is like a family. And it really did, it was a carrot helping motivate me in addition to the other things. So I wanted to say that um, the other thing is, I wanted to say to get off my chest, today, my understanding is, based on the, the text and emails and other things I've gotten, they're signing a deal, Worldwide Entertainment, home of the mob, um, <laughs> is signing a deal to make yet another attempt. Not a Samuel Jackson, not a Rob Zombie, not a whoever. So they're doing another one. And they have insisted, even though they denied us, they gave us the right to do the book, but not to release it. We've had it for two years. We've all, we could only afford to pay for 
200 and some copies of the 450 to which we licensed and paid the royalties ahead of. And this new company is insisting that we who paid $7,000 up to this point send them back all the books for no money. And, and the contract that has, we can't give them away. I can't leave them in a men's room. I can't, I, I can't, I can't do anything with them. And if, and if I die, according to the contract that we have now, we are not allowed to distribute them, which means we can't give them away. And they want us to give them all to them, which is a gigantic, but they, they are the big people. So I want you people to know that whatever the new blob is, I hope it's a good movie. But the people behind it and what they're doing, my father put up one third of the money to make the blob and never receive his full payment. So these are the, and we've kept, I've kept this under wraps and I've just signed a deal with a friend of mine, so, and I've got 30 hours of videotape and thousands of papers of documents that documents all of this stuff. So I, I have no vitriol, I have no anger, but I just want people to know the truth. I, I, God bless them, I hope they make a billion dollars, but without grooming. Um, because I just don't want to see, I don't want to see the blob ruin kids. Uh, I, I think the blob is iconic. And, you know, God knows how many times you've seen these movies, you know, remade. And sometimes they're good efforts, sometimes not so good. But the, the original blob is always, you know, gonna set that standard. And that's all this was. Every line of dialogue from the film Nothing was taken out, and not only that, you know well, when people run out of the Colonial Theater and half of them are <laughs> laughing because it's midnight, and you know, we used the same shots, but we got rid of all the laughing people. There's a 90-year-old grandmother pushing a six-year-old kid's head into the pavement. We've gotten rid of all the stuff. The lady housekeeper who has such great dialogue, but is, is an amateur, and is saying, well, can I dust around the fingerprints and whatnot? We use the frame in there where she has the expression that matches the dialogue that she's saying. We made it a complete, a complete project for the people who loved it, and, and we didn't change a thing from it, and this is what they're doing to us. Yep. So, once again, I love everybody. I love my enemy, I love my neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And, but since we're talking about the blob, yeah, uh, how about... Okay, can, let, let me finish up so oh, sure. get into the dinosaurs thing. I found in the back of my father's script the complete set of storyboards for all the animations. For, for the film. This you just saw, unfortunately, here's, here's the dinosaur, here's the drawing at the top. There's a scene from the film where the flames are 
licking around his face. It tells you what scene it is. It tells you what type of dining, uh, what time, uh, what type of animation it did. There are nine different kinds. This is the one. Here is the Brontosaurus in the in the. You're down there at the end on Facebook to give you a shout out. <laughs> uh, but this is that's what the drawing looked like, and that's what it looked like in the film. I have every single scene that has to do with all the magnificent stuff that they did in. Um, Oh, and here's the, here's another one. This is the uh, caveman shaking out the axe. Um, and I have another one of those. I, I was in the middle of this. The, the, the cancer is not, I mean, the cancer is killing me, but it's my broken back that's making life so difficult. But. In the end, and I hope to have this. Is, this is at the bottom of everyone has the, the title, but this is you see the the caveman with the axe, and uh, so anyhow, that's what I've been doing. I'm, I'm not sitting around waiting to die, <laughs> uh, and and I, I think. And I'm happy about that. And I'm sorry to. And thank you. No, no. Thank you for sharing those with us. But, I mean, you know, where else? Where else are you going to see something like that, right? I want to. And by the way, please stop by my booth. I've got a special, a small little gift for everybody who comes by, and I'd be delighted to talk to you about other things. Plus, I have new material from the bar. This is from the blog graphic novel. We took the scene of Steve and Anita making out, and you can barely see the meteorite. We enhanced it. We, we put them in Lover's Lane. We, once again, we tweaked pictures, but we made it a better project. We did not change the meaning. We made it seemed like it was supposed to be. And this is, it says, The Blob Arrival. This could be a movie poster. Anyhow, they are going to make us, because we don't have the money to fight these people. All they have to do is start a, 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 a suit and we're done. But they can't stop us from selling these things. So. Like I'm just saying, and I had more. Okay. I had different scenes from the film that I'm delighted to have. And so that's it. That's my thing. I hope you will come and see me in the, what's the name of that room? Guestavana room. Guestavana room. But since we're talking about the blob, I got, of course, you know. Any point from now on, uh, you, you, I, where you lead me, I will follow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, I'm, and I think everybody would, would, would want to know this. Uh, you were on the set of the blob, of course. I was indeed. Okay, tell us about Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen was a, was a complex character. He was great. We met him the year before, 
we were doing a, a feature-length film in 16 for the Salvation Army called Desperate Measures. And um, the second lead in the film was Mitzi McWhorter, who at the time was dating Steve McQueen. And, you know, it's only 90 miles from New York to our place outside of Philly. So even though the turn credits weren't done back in 1957 when we shot this, um, he came down as he's an actor. He always looking for a film studio you can get to work with. And so he, drew, he, had a, he drove in 1956. He had a hot rod Oldsmobile that he borrowed. He came down. And I also used to, when he came back the next year, because he knew I was Chris, we're going to have a great time this summer. And I showed him all of that horrible, windy, curvy uh, roads of Chester County. And at that point, he had an Austin Healy, which were always fun, but you sit flat on the floor with your feet up, you know, as opposed to having to bend your knees. And uh, then um, he lived in the basement of our house in Chester Springs. And by the way, I have um, maps that show of our whole studio complex there, uh, which we now show. But anyhow, Anita, of course, spent the summer in the bedroom next to mine on the second floor of the house. And then the following year, Lee Merriweather was in there. Uh, who was one of the great people of all time. Anita Corso and Steve McQueen had dated before, so there was always tension between them. And by the way, I do have a picture of her screen test in, that no one else ever had. Anyhow, I got some stuff. This is my swan song. If you come by, I'll, I'll make you a deal. Um, was, I'm trying was, to leave my wife some money. Was Steve McQueen difficult to work with? No. Yes. <laughs> no. Yes. He, he and my dad, my dad was 31. Steve was 27. And my dad looked five years younger than Steve McQueen. They had different ideas of how to play a scene. They often had to shut down production, not often, two or three times a day, um, <laughs> in the studio for them to go out and hash out something. But occasionally, Steve would just tell the other guys, James Fielding, uh, who played, uh, you know, the, the guy who drove the other hot rod, and said, so he just, you know, put the, the crown, and he said, um, yeah, I was having trouble. I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't know what Shorty meant for me to do. And Steve said, look, just let's, let's do, it. What he, do what he said and what you think you, you meant. And he did it. And then he got and moved on. Of course, Jack Harris was so cash poor, I, I would venture to say, outside of an Ed Wood production, this had the lowest uh, uh, you know, shooting ratio. Uh, I don't think any any scene ever had more than four or five takes. Most of them were three. Well, here's a curious fact, uh, at least you know, uh, reported that at the time of his death, uh, Steve McQueen 
uh, reportedly had a poster of the blob in his bedroom. Did you, have you ever heard that? Uh, I not only heard it, but I know it to be the truth. I, I know a whole bunch now. I highly recommend, if you really want to know about the arc of Steve McQueen's life, you've got to get the DVD or the book uh, written by Marshall Terrell, who's written eight books on Steve McQueen. Mostly they're called the table books. But they did, a, a, they did a video with Greg Laurie from Harvest Crusades in California, and it's called Steve McQueen, the conversion, the resurrect, the something of an American icon. And he tells the whole story of how he became a Christian and he died with the Bible that Billy Graham gave him on his chest. That poster was in his house and he died in Mexico. So it, 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 was, in the, it was in his bedroom. It was yep. the only movie poster. It was the only thing on the wall in his room. That's how much. And he says, and Marshall Terrell says it right in there, it was, see, we were a Christian film community. We were, we were making Christian films for the Salvation Army and, and all sorts of other people, and occasional and other NGOs. But when uh, he came there, and these people, we ate in communal dining hall. We prayed before we ate. And you know, a lot of people you know, snickered and get fought and whatnot. But Marshall Terrell says, in conversation with Steve's last widow, I mean, his, uh, Barbara, um, that Steve McQueen says that the seeds of his conversion were planted in Chester Springs, Pennsylvania, during the making of the law. And I'm sorry I'm getting off uh, track. But, uh, you know, I got lines. I, I, I was there. Steve McQueen, the reason that Steve McQueen didn't, and I didn't have any more fun was he, he was a Toll House cookie freak. And he would come, <laughs> and my mother always made Toll House cookies for the family. And so on top of the refrigerator was a crock pot with the, the Toll House. He came up one day, they weren't in there, and he begged my <laughs> sister to make him some, so she did. A week later, you know, in the week, they didn't last a week. Uh, a couple of days later, he begged my mother to, she said, I don't have morsels. And he said, I'll take you to Holland's, which is a local general store, where Steve used to buy ammunition to shoot uh, target practice where he would put a beer can on top of his, his German Shepherd Thor and have target practice oh and shoot them wow. the cans off. God. One day we got a message he missed and he killed us. Oh. So, and, and Steve liked to throw with all these young, you know, 50s actors. Uh, after the studio act method actors, all to come down and throw 
M80s in, in our pond, you know, and watch the fish kill. You know, not our kind of thing. We had to put a stop to that, too. Bottom line, my mother got in the car with Steve McQueen. It's, it's maybe a mile away, a mile and a quarter. It was a 90 degree turn there. It was a stop sign in a 90 degree turn. He took that turn with my mother in the car in a four-wheel slide going down the halls. She came back. She yeah, she never gathered us in. We were let loose, at, you know, at daybreak and make sure you're home for dinner or you get spanked at 6 o'clock with your hands washed. She said, you kids are never to get into a car again with Steve McQueen. <laughs> and that, you know, maybe, maybe that's why I turned out on the good side. I don't know. But he turned out on the good side, too. And it was a lifelong journey. But check it out. Steve McQueen, the conversion of an, or the something of an American icon. It tells the whole story. It's a, it's a decent video. They four-walled it in the studio and theaters. Um, it's a great, I'm sorry for rambling, but that's what I do. No, it's... I am verbose. <laughs> How about memories of working on the 4D Man? You were on the set 4D there, right? Man, I, man, Bob Lancey, I get Bob Lancey's son, Bobby, who died a few years ago, who also became a Christian later in life, I gave him a birthday party in August of 1958. He was one, years old, one year old. And do you, do you guys know who Bob Lansing was married to? Emily McLaughlin, who played nurse Jesse Brewer on General Hospital for 22 years. They got divorced. She married Jeffrey Hunter who died, and every, all you people here got to know Jeffrey Hunter from a variety of, of science fiction work. Yeah. He had a brain tumor, he fell down the step. Bob, Emily, and, 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 and what did I just say? What's his name? Jeffrey Hunter. They were all great friends. Um, but um, they, 4D man, Bob and I were friends until he died. When I was a session singer in Nashville, he had just finished making a, a bed, a B-movie with Joe Collins and John Carson, Johnny Carson and Albert Salmi, a whole bunch of things about killer ants outside of, of Georgia. And, he asked the key grip, he said, hey, I want to go to Nashville. Do you know anybody in Nashville? He said, as a matter of fact, I do. I was just a, a key grip on a thing for the Lancaster experience uh, for this guy, Shorty Yeaworth, and his son, Chris Yeaworth, is the such and singer and does TV commercials and stuff in Nashville. Chris Yeaworth! <laughs> so I took him around, I took him to, to, I took him to Hee Haw, because all my friends were working on it. Buck Owens stopped what he was doing. They, they, they stopped to take him when he walked in. Said, by Robert Lansing, I'm the biggest, you know, uh, Total Park High fan. 
I love your Colonel Savage. And, and, and they, you know, the bottom line, Bob and I were great friends. One, one time I was out there, we were doing our, the Lancaster experience, you know, we do in the first, with 5.1 surround sound hadn't been invented. They showed us the first test tapes of, of 5.1 optical sound. We had to do our surround thing in, in surround sound. There was no center of channel. I came in and because when, when we went to set up to do it, I said, I can't do this. This is day at 270 degrees. I said, no, I need wind chimes to go around the room. I need birds to do this. I need the sound of the train to go down the wall and to the back. Todd A.O. with six Academy Awards had to go out and rent a bunch of materials, uh, hardware, in order to do the stuff that I've been doing by the seat of my pants in Nashville with, with Stolted Tascam and Joysticks that they had invented. I came back in after we'd done some sub mixing, I saw a ping pong table there, and there were stems and seeds on it. And these are pocket protector guys. I said, I know you guys weren't talking up while I was here. <laughs> so no, I said, no, yeah, I meant to mention it to you. Led Zeppelin was in here, and with their production company, and they're doing their work on the song remains the same. And I showed him your, your system. He said, well, that's what we want. So I finally saw the movie about a year ago. Terrible movie. But I heard all my, my effects and this stuff. So I went to a two-room schoolhouse in Chester Springs. There, to this day, there are no sidewalks. There are no, there are no stoplights. And that just proves when your father says, learn how to do this, and you, and you accept it as a challenge, you do it. And the people with six Academy Awards didn't know how to do what I knew how to do, self-taught. There you go. Because my father said, and I always took it as a challenge. And anyhow, I've wandered, I feel the 40, Lee Mary was great fun. Uh, this will be in my book, which I just signed the deal for. So this stuff is all going to come out, whether I'm here or not. But Patty did taught me how to French kiss in 1950. <laughs> <laughs> Things you find out in the dash. People, people ask me, was it fun hanging around with Steve McQueen? I mean, come on. You know, what really was that fun? I said, yeah, it really was. But I think in terms of childhood experiences on the film sets and, you know, what could happen offset, because we had 165 acres and we used to escape my sister, Patty and I, and go out and make out behind the waterfall, uh, behind the swimming pool. And, um, I, I knew it I grew up in the country, you know, we saw, we, we saw cows being born, we saw bulls impregnating, we saw eggs. I had no idea what the French were doing with their tongues. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up the questions from the audience at this point, so if anybody has any questions, uh, for Chris, now is the time. Questions? 
Uh, you folks have traveled all the way out here. You don't have any questions? Yes, the man in the orange shirt. <laughs> uh, you, you told this story before, but I think some folks might be interested in it. Uh, I believe that you had uh, the Rolling Stones uh, at your at your place there too. This is, well, this was after we sold that property. Oh, okay. We uh, we sold the uh, we bought it from the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, and then we sold it to a, a local bunch of people who there's too many chiefs and not enough Indians. They all just thought they were. The, Cats pajamas, and they would try to get all the local people to do the work while they ideated the plan, the plans, and try to make it a, a thing. But um, so we sold the place. We moved in in June of 1952, and moved out in February of 1973 and then moved into the new property, which was a uh, 23-room mansion with 15 acres, um, seven bathrooms, and, uh, you know, we were downsizing from 165 acres and 26 buildings. When we sold Chester Springs, we sold 150 rooms full of furniture. Oh, God. And moved into 23 rooms. Now, of course, with the kids, we'd all grown and we were gone. So, as a matter of fact, I was living in Nashville. Keith Richards got busted in Toronto with <laughs> the heroin. But the British government wanted to make an example of him. Canadian government, the Swiss government, the Bahamian government, everybody, they would not let him go back. They wanted him to go to prison. People got involved. There is a, once again, I got lines. Um, and this is all going to be in my, my, the, I'm so happy they wanted to do from the time how did my father get into this? So what did you end up after at this point? And so I can talk about this. I can, I can because I wouldn't go into a book with a blog. But Keith Richard Nick came down to double check to see if the place was suitable for Keith, and it, it passed muster. And while he was there. My my sister, who is an Anglophile, as was my my mother. Uh, my mother once even took the Concord, so she could go, fly free to go to the flower show in the spring, which she went as many years as she could. But she took the Concord so she could fly free and get there in an hour and a half. So that's what kind of person she was. But she. Um, uh, let's see, uh, we're talking about Keith, Keith, Keith Richard Richard. So he, he came, my sister cooked and, and made quiche. Keith, and made tea. She made quiche to go with the tea, British tea, which they were blown away. They didn't expect to find that here. And then uh, they went home. 
Keep this lady, Meg Patterson, who had already treated Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce, Ginger Baker, um, uh, uh, let's say Pete Townsend. Uh, uh, he, he treated all the, the Roger Stigwood people. And um, she invented this electronic acupuncture thing which clipped in your ear which she ideated while attending an acupuncture in Hong Kong in the, in the middle, the late 60s or early 70s. Um, but she developed this box you would kick with no withdrawal symptoms in one to three days. I saw Keith, I was there when he showed up at the house. My parents were were hoping I wouldn't arrive from Nashville because I was a session singer in Nashville and they needed me to do something. And they were hoping that I wouldn't be there. At least they were happy I missed Nick. Um, but uh, Keith's eyes looked like two pee holes in the snow. His hair was limp and lackluster. His skin was ashen. I came back because he asked them to have me come back because I had no idea. He was into country music. And uh, he, had, he had something, you know, the uh, Wild Horses of Graham Parsons from the Flying Burrito from Graham Parsons um, what was uh, involved with that. And they were working on other stuff. If uh, uh, Angels Watching, uh, May the Good Lord Shed His Light on You. They all wrote that together as a cut, and Leon Russell was involved in that, as well as Graham Nash, as well as so many other people. There's just, I got lines. I, I just, I just, my mind is like a sponge. I was a family historian. I know stuff, and I'm sorry for the people who were bored with this, this topic. Bottom line is, after a week, he was, I mean, no, that's the second story I want to say. I came back two days later. His hair had life in it. His eye, he had energy. He had enthusiasm. He, had, he was sitting out in the back there uh, in a pair of shorts, and we were talking about stuff when I was talking about Buck Owens. He had in his suitcase 50 country and western albums. He had, he had, he had country stuff. He had, all sorts of stuff. It was amazing. And um, Mick came down, this is the last thing I'll get off this story. Um, Mick came back after a week, brought him an ounce of Coke and an ounce of smack. The, the, the US government was involved in this. We had security people, they kicked, can imagine that they kicked Mick Jagger out. Which is another interesting story is my wife worked for Atomic Design and COVID killed her career after 21 years. But um, she had to climb inside Mick Jagger's lips for the sets because they, they made Atomic Design with Tate Towers and Claire Brothers Sound. They had this thing called uh, now, uh, uh, 
rock with us. But they did these, they, do, they did all these shows. And um, so my wife, Lake Mick Jagger's lips are 33 feet long when you see them on the back, on the set, on the stage. And they did the last UT tour, which is the most fabulous scenics I've ever seen. That they just blew me away. And of course, we got free tickets to all these things for, for 20 years. And saw so everybody that we ever wanted to see, you know, the Eagles, Joe Cocker, Steve Owen, Bonnie Reed, uh, Taj Mahal. Yeah, anyhow. Any questions? Any questions we have? Uh, right here. Me? Yes. So you mentioned, um, like, your father would say things to you and you would take them as a challenge. What would you say is, like, the greatest challenge that you ever really took because of him and how you overcame it? Greatest challenge from your father? We had to finish an hour-long videotape that we'd been working on for six months. And the machines weren't working. And this is another weird thing. We also, don't blame me for Jim and Tammy Baker, but the MA for Profit um, a, a production facility called Park, uh, uh, Park, Park Road Productions in Charlotte. And we got such a good deal there, we just couldn't afford to go there. But they rented out to you know, local TV because they weren't making money fleecing. You know, people. But I had to put together <coughs> with no time at all, with no plans, with nothing working in 20, no, no, I think it was 30, it was 47 hours. I had to come up with a plan, I had to start doing it, and I had to have the whole thing done. For my and, and duplicated on the two-inch video for Cliff Barrows, Billy's car director and president of Worldwide Pictures, to take to Virginia Beach, and there was only one plane out, and nothing failed. Everything I did worked perfectly, and you know, and my father almost broke down and cried because he was afraid he was going to miss this deadline. I never missed any other deadlines. Uh, other people missed them. And, uh, but, you know, I edited 70 hours without stopping, without any cognitive decline. And I got the, I, I worked all nighters for my father probably 40 nights a year which probably is not helping my cognitive abilities at <laughs> the end of my life. I'm sorry that I've taken you places that you probably didn't want to go. But no, not at all. all. Not at all. Listen, I am the... I've done... I've been in more places by accident than Florida to go. I kid you not. <laughs> and, 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 and I've melted into more clouds and crowds than Zelly. I almost got eaten alive by sharks with Jerome Hines, who was the base for the Metropolitan Opera, who was at the net longer than anyone else. 
41 years. And we were doing a documentary with him in, the, in Bimini in the Bahamas. And it's a, it's a long story, but I got that, I almost got hit killing the burning building. I, I you know, I had to determine whether to burn, jump to burning flame or jump down two floors on the cement. I decided to go through the 24 inch uh, ceiling members for the gigantic building, Studio B, which is where all our editing gear was. And 20 seconds after I got out of the building, the whole building blew out, the line blew out, because that's where our oil tank was. And the heat from that. Yeah. Our, one of our caretakers was burning honeysuckle on a dry July day. Anyhow, and Jack Harris was supposed to have paid the uh, insurance, and he did. Anyhow, so once again. Well, we're very, very glad to have you with us, Chris, and we appreciate you being here. We appreciate you. Let's hear it. Stop by and see Chris at his table. He has so many stories, just great stuff from movies, music. It's Chris Jayworth and Monster Bass. Hey, Derek. Hey, group. Captain Billy here. Three points I'm going to get to today. Another Yes, another long phone call from Captain Billy. I listen to a, another podcast, sorry Derek, you're not the only podcast in my life, called Monster Party Podcast. If you Google Monster Party, you'll get a video game from the 1990s. If you Google Monster Party Podcast, it should come up. Monster Party Podcast, clear round tones. There's a gentleman, there's four gentlemen that do the show. One of them is Larry Strode. We got Stroth, Strode. He is a big Creature of the Black Lagoon collector. Larry will be featured on Collector's Call on MeTV on Sunday, August 28th. This is the final episode of the current season. That is a show that is hosted by Lisa Wetzel. It used to be on the Facts of Life, if the name sounds familiar. Wetzel? Wetzel. Um, but she, uh, the show is you go into someone who is a collector and you look through their, uh, their items. And what happens is an expert brings along an item to trade with one of the items that is in the uh, person's home or in their collection. So Larry will be on this show, and I was very excited because his name came up on my DVR, and I was like, on the description of the show, and I was like, oh, I know that name. And I watched the last episode, and there he was. I recognized him, and there was his giant creature collection. So, uh, again, if you're, again, I know how Derek feels about Creature of the Black Lagoon, so I think it's definitely uh, must-see TV for all listeners of Monster Kid Radio. The second thing, Derek, you went to this comedy club, and you seemed to be disappointed that when they were asked, the audience was asked about call a classic monster that they called out Mike Wazowski and, and Cujo. Well, just to put some perspective on it, I was born in the late 60s, 67. I know Derek was born somewhere in the early 70s. And it seems to me, for most people in our age group, who is this, pretty much everyone who listens, everybody on the show, everyone who listens to the show probably is in our age group. It seems to me, generally, when you think of a quote-unquote classic monster, it's something that was created before you were born. 
So I'm going to throw this out. We all know Frankenstein and Dracula are considered mummy, wolfman, etc. Are considered the classic monsters. But what about the creature? Oh, sorry. Howard Hawks' Thing from Another World. Is that a classic monster? How about the Amazing Colossal Man or the 50-Foot Woman? Are those considered classic monsters? I mean, these are all movies that were made before I was born. And in my head, they're classic. Basically, if it's in black and white, it's a classic. I know you guys would consider Godzilla a classic monster. So the question comes back, you were disappointed. I mean, I guarantee you the audience you went with were all guys, people in their 20s and 30s. And you know what? Cujo is probably before those people were born. They consider them classics. Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, these people have been around, these characters have been around 30 or 40 years. So the people in the audience, these monsters would be considered classics. They were all, well, at least Cujo was a monster created before they were born. So I I, I know what you were feeling. I understand your perspective, but you have to look at the other people in the audience. Jaws is a classic monster in these people. Hannibal Lecter would be considered a classic monster in these people's opinions. So it all depends on what your perspective is. I thought, just, I thought your reaction was a little unusual. So final thing. The 19, speaking of classic things, 1979's George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Well, I just found out about this weekend, so maybe this is old news to some of you will be playing in Regal Cinemas exclusively over Halloween weekend, hold on to your seats, in 3D, kids. That's right. I probably wouldn't be interested. I've seen that movie plenty of times. Probably wouldn't be interested. But if I could see this movie in 3D, I think it's worth the effort. Again, Regal Cinemas, it all depends. Some of them, I when I checked the schedule a, little, a couple of days ago, they showed that they were going to show it all the way up till the Thursday after Halloween. Now that I just checked it again, the schedule changed. Now they're going to play My local theater is going to play up until November 1st. But from what I can tell, it all depends on where you live and which regal you, which regal you frequent. You might get extended showings after Halloween. You might not. Uh, I'm just as pure as the schedule is still a little bit in flux. But you definitely will be able to go see it on the 28th, the 29th, the 30th, and the 31st from what I've read. So plan accordingly. And now you know well in advance, so you can get that day. And they're showing it in the daytime, like uh, the Friday and Saturdays. And that's just these are just evening shows. My local theater, my local theater is showing it at like noon or one o'clock or two o'clock. It's perfect for an old man like me who can't stay up till ten o'clock or midnight to watch Dawn of the Dead. Because back in the day, you had to stay up till midnight to watch Dawn of the Dead. Now you can watch it at like twelve thirty. You can have popcorn for lunch and watch this movie at a reasonable hour. So. Derek, great show as always. Keep up the good work. Thanks again. Thanks for calling in. I appreciate it. And I have no problem stitching various voicemails together to make one cohesive message. So listeners, if you are interested in contributing to the show the way Captain Billy did and you want to call in and leave us a voicemail, please call us at 360-524-2484. And what I'll do is edit the voicemail together to uh, make it all sound like one thing if you do go over the three minute limit and you have to call back a second time so don't worry about that i enjoy doing that anyway a couple things uh actually you brought up three things so let's talk about all three first of all uh, i am familiar with collector's call i did see on facebook somebody talking about creature uh being featured on the next episode now i currently don't have me tv uh, i don't know where to see creature call creature call <laughs> collector's call if you don't have me tv uh, but if you do have it, yeah, go check it out and, uh, you know, enjoy checking out somebody else's creature from the Black Lagoon. 
collection. Of course, it's my favorite movie, so I'm going to try to track it down myself and watch it because that just sounds amazing. Uh, also, uh, speaking of Creature, as an aside, I just recorded something for Creature from the Black Lagoon related content this morning with my friend Matt Rashley. That's a name that you're going to be hearing more about later this year, maybe early next year, if you are paying attention to all the stuff that I've got going on. Anyway, Matt and I recorded about something. Uh, uh, creature. Okay, back to Creature. Sorry, got excited. So, yeah, that sounds awesome. Sounds very cool. You made a comment about my... Um, reaction to somebody mentioning Cujo as a classic monster movie. And I think for me, I look at it less about like how old a movie is. And I think about a particular era. And I think that the best analogy I can make here is comparing it to like comic books, comic books, continuity history and comic books for long running comic companies like Marvel have a reflective or reflexive, I guess is probably the better word here, a reflexive way of looking at their time. For example, when Iron Man made its debut, he was a survivor of, I believe, Vietnam, wasn't it? But then when the films comes out, he's over in the Middle East. And I think in the comics, something similar happened with the Punisher and some of the other characters that have very set in time events or origins. And as time goes on, they just kind of roll that period up a little bit. And I get that. But then on the other hand, when you look at comics of a certain vintage, you can say, okay, these comics are of the golden age or the silver age of comics. Did they ever come up with an age after the silver age? I don't know. Anyway, I guess where I'm going with this is that when I think classic monsters classic movies i don't think of something that happened 20 30 40 years ago i have a very particular era that i kind of look at much like when you talk about the golden age of comic books you look at action comics number one detective comics number 27 things like that does that make sense so that's kind of where i'm coming from i understand that for a lot of people the slashers of the 80s are their classic monsters and i get that I get that Jaws can exist in that era and sometimes does depending on what magazine you're reading or what documentary you're watching. For me, the classic era is the 30s, 40s, 50s, some of the 60s. I, I use Romero's Night to the Living Dead as kind of like the cutoff, actually. Uh, and it's kind of, kind of fast and loose these days. But when I first started Monster Kid Radio, I used 1968 as my cutoff because that's when Night to the Living Dead came out. And there were two reasons I used that as my cutoff. Night to the Living Dead was kind of like a, a paradigm shift in what horror movies were or could be. So I kind of used that as my, my pivot point or my end point. Yes, there were other movies that led up to it that made that possible. And, and movies that came out afterwards, that kind of solidified that. But Night to the Living Dead really kind of was a, a very important point in horror cinema. Also, it was a reference to my old zombie stuff that I used to do back in the day when I used to produce the Mail Order Zombie podcast, which is my segue into what you just brought up around Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> I'm not going to call it a classic based on what I just said, but it is an important movie. There are a handful of movies that I can talk about. Very few, actually. Probably count them on one hand that I consider to be more than just a movie. 
There are some movies that I love. Creature from the Black Lagoon, my favorite film of all time. Referenced that earlier in this call. But it's not a movie that transcends. I feel a little weird saying that because I have so much love for Creature, but movies like Conan the Barbarian, Cloud Atlas, and Dawn of the Dead kind of transcend being, quote-unquote, just a movie. Not that there's anything wrong with being just a movie. But these are movies that become pieces of art that have become more than that. They, they have a, a philosophical message. They have meanings that I'm able to discern and learn from. Depending on what time of my life I'm watching these movies, they might mean something more to me. Uh, Knight Riders, another Romero film, is another movie like this. These are movies that whenever I watch, I learn something new about myself as opposed to learning something new about the movie. I don't know if that makes sense, but Dawn of the Dead is one of these films. I had heard that it was going to get a 3D re-release in October. I'm all in. I'm going. Uh, I may go more than once, depending on timing and finances. I am excited to see this on the big screen. I've never seen it on the big screen. I've seen Night of the Living Dead on the big screen. I've seen Day of the Dead on the big screen. And the following Romero films. I saw Land of the Dead on the big screen two times, two days in a row. I did see Diary of the Dead, Survival of the Dead. Which one was the, I, the two of those I get mixed up? Because they're not as great, to be honest. They're movies that I recommend you see if you're a fan of Romero. Just don't expect to become a fan of the movies. Wow, that's what I said about those movies when I first saw them. I haven't watched them since. I don't know how they hold up. But anyway. Dawn, I've never seen on the big screen, and I am excited to see it on the big screen. Even if it's not the quote-unquote original version, if it's been 3D-ized, I'm curious because this is probably the bloodiest, goriest movie that this 3D company has ever worked on. And I've watched this movie so many times over the years. I owned it on various versions of VHS, DVD, and Blu-ray, and I have watched it a lot, and I love it. I can quote sequences of the movie. I can give you beat-by-beat breakdowns of various scenes in my head. I can tell you what music cues happen, where. There are scenes that happen in this thing that are seared into my brain, partly because I watched the movie so much because I enjoyed the movie, partly because it transcended, like I said earlier, and partly because I used to think I'd be his filmmaker when I grew up and I looked at Tom Savini's career as a temp- template for the kind of things that I wanted to do. I wanted to be a special makeup effects guy. So I watched Dawn of the Dead from that point of view as well. There are so many times when heads are getting shot and zombies' heads are being exploded. I wonder how some of these things are going to look in 3D. I know that there's a very particular shot where a zombie head gets shot and explodes because Wooly's gone ape, <clears throat> man. I, I know that happens in a movie or in the movie. And I know that the effect was done with like a cast of a head and it was filled with fake blood and corn chips and Fritos and apple cores and all that. So I'm curious to see that explode in 3d. I don't know if that says anything weird about me, but I want to see that in 3d. I want to see the movie in 3d and I'm going. I, I just, I can't wait. So listeners, if you're in the Pacific Northwest area, Drop me a line at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or call me at the voicemail line. Uh, The phone number again is 
360-524-2484 and let me know. And we'll set up a time and we'll all go together. I'd love to see it with a crowd. Oh man, I would love to see that in a crowd. <sighs> Dawn of the Dead is so good. So stinking good. Anyway, thanks for calling in, Captain Millie. I really appreciate it. It means a lot to have you being part of the show. So thank you. We also had a voicemail come in. This was an audio recording that came in from another listener. So here we go. Hey, Derek. This is Scott Pliskin. Wanted to add to the discussion that you and Ricardo had for the Spanish language Dracula. I'm glad you guys are positive about both versions of Dracula, because too often the Spanish version is used as a weapon to bash the English language version. While it's not perfect, Todd Browning's Dracula is one of my favorite universal horror movies. For the production of both movies, a common thing we hear is that Browning shot during the day and the Melford shot at night. This isn't entirely true. Browning's shoot actually started weeks before Melford, with Melford wrapping weeks after Browning did. So shooting at the same time was just however long they overlapped, not the entire shoot. And we hear about how Melford watched Browning's dailies to see how he was approaching things. Theoretically, this was just leading up to Melford's shoot and not happening once the shoot started. He'd likely only have time to focus on his own dailies once he was off and going. As far as the cardboard on the lamp in Browning's version, there's actually a character reason for that. With the light divided in that way, the nurse could sit and read while Mina could sleep, being shielded from the nurse's reading light. And finally, there's the criticism of Browning's version being staged because it was based on the stage play. I think the reason Browning's version gets saddled with the stagey label is two small moments. First, the line about seeing a wolf run across the yard off screen. They should have either got a shot of a wolf or any kind of large dog running away, or just cut the line. Second, there's a scene done in one shot where Van Helsing is talking with Mina and Harker. What makes that scene feel stilted is Manners standing over her, hovering over, waiting for his cue to slide down next to her. If he would have been sitting the whole time, it would have been better. Or if the scene had more coverage, even better than that. So that's my thoughts. Shout out to the Monster Kid universe. Love chatting with everyone on social media and Twitch chats. Also listening to the other podcast done by friends of the show, Monster On. Monster On indeed. Thanks for sending that in. And I don't understand why somebody would want to weaponize the Spanish Dracula. The Todd Browning Dracula. Mm. The Todd Browning Dracula, admittedly, it does have some moments that if you're not in the right frame of mind, are going to come across as a little stagey or slow or creaky. But I think sometimes that gives you the opportunity to really step back and enjoy what you're looking at. In these so-called slower moments, you can see the amazing production design. You can live in that gothic world that has been put on screen so lovingly, painstakingly. Oh, so good. The original Dracula... It's a classic. It's it's one that God, I, I just I can't imagine not enjoying. And I think if you go into it and watch the Spanish Dracula, like Ricardo and I were saying, if you watch it, man, you, you're going to see things in the Spanish language Dracula that are going to illuminate and make even better the English language version. Now, I don't know much about the production of the Spanish language version, so thanks for sharing that. I didn't know that. The common story is that, yes, they shot it at night, but I do wonder how much of that was like a Famous Monsters of Filmland version of history. No dig on Famous Monsters of Filmland, of course, but Famous Monsters and Forrest J. Ackerman is partly responsible for the rumor that there were two endings shot for King Kong versus Godzilla. 
depending on which side of the you know planet you were on, you saw a, a different monster win. So, you know, who knows? But that said, thanks for kind of correcting that. And then the lampshade piece, the cardboard or whatever, all I knew is what was referenced in that Cinemassacre YouTube video that I linked to last week. Go check out the show notes over monsterkidradio.net to find a link to that. Thanks for sending that in. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate everybody who participates in the show. It means a lot to have you involved. So please consider becoming part of the show, like Scott or Captain Billy. Again, give me a call, 503. That's not correct anymore. Sorry. <laughs> we had to change it. It's 360-524-2484. Or email me at monsterkidradio at gmail. Com. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate you being here. It's been a pleasure sharing the episode with you. And a huge thanks to Mike R., who really knocked it out of the park with all the content he gathered for us at Monster Bash. And, you know, just... Thank you for doing that. I appreciate you taking the time to do that. I, I know you and I have talked a little bit by email about how it's fun for you to do this. And I, I really hope that you're not cutting into your own Monster Bash experience while making sure we have content. So thank you. I appreciate you. I'll take whatever you send me, man, because what you send me is gold. So thank you. And thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of the show, everybody. Thanks for sharing the posts and retweeting and liking and subscribing and patronizing and thumbs upping and everything else, whatever it is you do to help support the show. I guess I appreciate you. I appreciate, appreciate you. I don't know what just happened there anyway. So this week was originally going to be a conversation with my friend, Tom Greganis about the movie creature from the haunted sea. Well, guess what? That's going to happen next week. So next week, creature from the haunted sea with Tom Greganis from go forth and game. That'll be coming up. I'm looking forward to that. We've already recorded that. It was a fun conversation. I'm eager to share it with everybody. I'm not sure what's happening after that, but, you know, it'll be something cool. I'm, I'm hopeful. Anyway, uh, you can follow along over at monsterkidradio.net. Find out everything you need to know about the podcast. Between episodes, just go check us out over there to find links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter, our Discord, our Reddit, our Patreon, and everything else that we have going on. Oh, our Twitch is over there, too. You know we show movies like twice a week, right? Over at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. That's free on Saturday. It's all day. Tuesday, it's afternoon to the evening. But if you're not there for the live show, you can always just check it out whenever because I usually put it on a loop. Now, we are going to be making some changes to the Twitch channel in the near future, uh, maybe later this year. So stay tuned for that. Uh, may change the amount of movies we show or the kind of movies we show, but just check it out. Just join us because it's a good time. It can only be made better if you're there. You know what I mean? So come join us over there for the movies. I'm trying to think of anything else that's coming up. Oh, so earlier, Captain Billy brought up uh, Dawn of the Dead, excuse me, Dawn of the Dead in 3D, uh, showing uh, in the theaters around Halloween weekend. Well, I was doing some checking about that, and it turns out it's not the only classic, and uh, okay, maybe not classic, but it's, it's not the only retro movie that's being shown. Right now, if you head over to, like, Regal Cinema's website, the original Blob is getting shown for some reason the first weekend of September. Don't know why. Is there an anniversary? Is there something going on that I'm just not aware of? I don't know. 
but I do know the blob is showing. So you know I'm going to try to go. Now, I don't think it's showing in Vancouver, but it may be showing in Portland. So check that out if you are interested in seeing the blob on the big screen. I've never seen it on the big screen, and I really kind of want to because it is it's one of the classics, man. It's a good, good movie, and uh, I want to see it. So, yeah, maybe next weekend uh, we can meet up somewhere and see the blob. Again, drop me a line if you're in the Vancouver or Portland or Pacific Northwest area, and maybe we can plan something. We'll, we'll organize a meetup, a blob up. That sounds weird. You know what doesn't sound weird, though? The music that we're playing this week on the show. I mentioned it at the top of the show. I'm going to mention it again. The song is called Just Another Surf Song. It is from the band The Dwellers, courtesy of their record label, Spaghetti Records. Andrew from Spaghetti Records reached out to me and sent me an email, really nice email. We played some music from his old band on the podcast many, many moons ago. His band was called House of Man. Well, House of Man isn't around anymore, but the record label is. They've got a YouTube channel as well. I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Go look up this song on Spotify when you're done listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. That is the end of the podcast. So I'm going to wrap up by telling you that Monster Kid Radio's registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song. Just another surf song. That is copyright 2022. The Dwellers. My name is Sarah Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week when we check out Creature from the Haunted Sea. Ciao.